Welcome to High Lawn Baptist Church in St. Albans, West Virginia, where our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. We pray that you are blessed by our Sunday evening walk through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. For more information, visit us online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. So grab your copy of God's Word and join us as we walk through the Bible. Well, we are in the second part of session 10, talking about Christ's expectations for His own church and what were the, the commandments of the New Testament that were left by, uh, left by both Him and the apostles in uh, instructing us on what this new kind of organization, this new kind of gathering is. In fact, there's, there's a great deal of misconception about the local church, that it is uh, just a gathering or that it is just an organization in the business sense or that it is um, something akin to a country club. But this is a spiritual community, and I don't mean that in, in the just a religious sense. The Greek word for church is ekklesia, which in early Celtic terms was kerk, which in Scotland is still called a kirk, which is where that last name comes from, but it's also where we get the word church. But anyway, the, the real raw definition of the term ecclesia is the called out ones. And Paul describes it in many different ways. The body of Christ, the bride of Christ. Um, the Apostle Peter refers to it as a temple made from living stones of which we are. But the difference between the church and all other organizations is that we are intended to function as a family and not merely as a company. That our job is to gather together and to gather together frequently. As we discussed last session, uh, and in case you missed last session, the notes are available online. In fact, those same notes in the chart will be used in this session. But there is a commandment that the writer of Hebrews gives us um, to spur one another unto good works and to not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as some are in the habit of doing. In other words, there is a biblical command to gather together, to meet and to meet often, to worship. A command of God that made its way under His superintendence and under His breath into Scripture. And all the more so as we see the day approaching. In other words, not only are we supposed to gather frequently as a part of who we are regularly, but as we see the section that we're going to talk about in uh, next Wednesday, and well, excuse me, Wednesday after next, this coming Wednesday, uh, this coming week is Holy Week, which means here at Highline we will be uh, observing Monday Thursday instead of our regular Wednesday services. So, so that those of you who join us, uh, we'll be having a tenebrae service here next coming Thursday instead of the regular Wednesday service. But uh, that tells us three things in the New Testament. First of all is that church attendance is not optional. Forsaking not the assembly of yourselves together. Secondly is that we are to do the work of ministry all together, meaning that there are not to be people who are, who are here just to be served, just to be entertained, just to be taught, 
but that we are to take that knowledge and put it to use in our lives and in our ministry, to spur one another to good works. That's the first part of that phrase. And the last one, all the more so as you see the day approaching, meaning that as we see the day of the Lord coming, then we are to literally be here every time that the doors are open, gathering together, supporting each other, teaching each other, encouraging each other, being that that uh, pinnacle of uh, that pinnacle of morality and ethics in a world that thinks that those things are optional. But before we delve any further, let's bow our hearts for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we come before your throne, um, as we dedicate this time and ourselves to you without any reservation, open our hearts, open our minds, open our hands, and set our feet forth, both to be transformed in everything that we are and to be put to use by you. Join with us here as we come underneath your throne. Teach us to work, to gather, to act, to celebrate as one. In the most holy name of Christ we pray. Amen. So I was asked by a a pastor friend of mine um, to... (laughs) I, I can't remember the exact way that he phrased it, but something along the lines of, the seven churches, can you give us the, the, the bare bones meaning of the concern and the instruction? What was the problem, the, the underlying problem, and what does Christ offer as the solution? So take out your charts, and you'll find a lot of this is already underlined for you. Uh, but just to make sure that that is made clear, I'll give you those in brief. And so that we're not bogged down, I'll give them in fairly rapid succession. So this, these are Christ's identified problems of the seven churches in brief, followed by his instruction, the cure to those problems in brief. So very quickly, uh, the church at Ephesus, the problem Christ identifies is that the church is program-driven with no devotional life. They have left their first love. Uh, they're so busy doing the work of the kingdom that they have no time for the king. And his instruction to them in brief is to rebalance your ministries, rebalance who you are by putting your love for God first. Smyrna, the problem was that the church is being persecuted from the outside and that the society that's sheltering them is trying to force them to worship in their way. In this case, remember that we were talking about Caesar worship. So Christ's instruction to this church is to remain faithful to God even in the face of death, and that the season of persecution is limited, its days are numbered, and that God's help is coming. Pergamum, the central problem was that the church is allowing the trappings of a pagan society into the church. In other words, there is little difference between the way people in the church act from the way that people act out of the church. So Jesus' instructions were, The worship of Christ is exclusive. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. God identifies himself in the Old Testament also as a jealous God. So the worship of the living God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is to be exclusive. There can be no other gods and there can be no other way. 
The Christian life is also supposed to be different from the world around us, as we've discussed earlier. And Christ himself, in the case of this church, Christ himself said that he would confront this church with the truth. And I believe for every church out there that has a trouble, has, has trouble separating the way of the world from the way of God, that Christ will do precisely that, that the word of truth will confront them. In this case, he refers to the word of truth as a double-edged sword. So if I were some churches that are thinking about reading under the Scripture to invalidate the Scripture, I would really think twice. Because in this passage, Christ himself sets himself up as a warrior against this type of congregation. Thyatira. The problem Christ identifies in brief is that the church is not challenging false authority and false teaching. I have this against you that you suffer that prophet, that, that woman Jezebel who claims herself to be a prophet, but is not. So this church is not challenging false authority and false teaching. And there's also persecution in the case of this church that's coming from the inside. We can say that this probably is a lot of gossiping, a lot of false witnesses, a lot of backbiting, a lot of subterfuge, just as with Jezebel of the Old Testament. So Christ's instruction is to repent, and by repent, he means change direction. In other words, put discipline back in the church, challenge false teachings and teachers, or Christ himself will judge. Be your brother's keeper. Remain faithful through the challenge. Sardis, the church of the little red ones, or the useless gemstones. The problem is that this church is all about appearances with no spiritual substance. They are the country club. They are the church that wants the giant colonnade out front. They don't want anything to, uh, to upset the status quo. They just want to come together, be seen. Uh, think of themselves as well-to-do, well-off, go home and not be changed. No spiritual life, no maturing believers. So Christ's instruction to the remnant that remains faithful in this church is to hold to the truth of the gospel and devote yourselves to the work of the ministry. In other words, strengthen what remains, was his exact quote. The Church of Philadelphia. The problem was that this church, like Smyrna, was under persecution while it, was in while it was trying to engage in the ministry. And in this case, this church again sat at a crossroads of trade, which made it a, a hub for missionaries to be scattered throughout the world. That's what they were called to do. So Christ's instruction was to return hatred, not with more hatred, but with what? With love. Do not answer hatred with hatred. Answer hatred with love. If you remember, there was a, a large... Uh, Jewish population in this city that was persecuting this church and they instead of persecuting them back they loved them with an agape love to the point that the Jewish population became the Christian population. So return hatred with love, remain faithful through the persecution and continue the missional and the evangelical work to which you have been called. Laodicea this is the, the apostate church, the church where the people reign instead of Christ, the church where Christ is outside. In other words, this is a group that call themselves a church, but they don't have any Christians on the inside of the church. Non-regenerate. The church, the problem as Christ puts it in brief is the church is an organization where Jesus is not Lord. 
and there is limited to no converted members within. So his instruction to this church is accept the gospel, be transformed, and accept Christ as Savior and Lord. I stand outside the door and knock. Word of condemnation against any church because the Savior of the church isn't within the church. He's outside trying to get in. So that's the seven churches in brief. What I want to do now is give you a little more insight as to what Christ has to say about this organization slash organism slash the bride of Christ called the church and the other big treasure trove of instruction that he has other than uh, Revelation 2 and 3 is in Matthew chapter 13. And I think that you'll notice that in this particular group of parables that what Christ is teaching really does reflect a lot of what we just read over in his letters to these seven churches. So if you've got your copy of God's uh, word with you, go ahead and take it out and turn to Matthew 13. And I want you to look for three things. The first thing I'd ask you to look for are parallel instructions. What do you see in your translation that is common between this passage and Revelation chapters 2 and 3? What, uh, and, and, and what are Christ's instructions in the case of the things that aren't necessarily parallel? What else can we learn from these kingdom parables? Really quickly, let's review why Christ is teaching in parables. And again, we covered a lot of this ground last time, but just by way of review. Parables, according to Jesus, from verses 10 through 17, uh, the reason that the, the disciples ask him, why do you speak so often in parables? And the first, uh, so that the believer may understand, but not the unbeliever, that these things, according to the prophet Isaiah, might be hidden to encourage the, guiding, the, the, the believer to rely on the guiding power of the Holy Spirit. And that truth, the same truth that Jesus provides, is also uh, given to the believer, and the believer at the same time is being judged for what they choose to do with it. Uh, those that have, you will receive more. Those that have not, even the little that you have will be taken from you. In other words, when you receive the gospel message, or when you receive the truth from Scripture, what do you do with it? How do you use that talent that the master gives you? Do you substitute your own preference or do we substitute our preference over the spiritual truth? We can see that in Laodicea. We can also see that in Thessalonica. Do we proclaim the gospel message as it's been given to us or do we withhold it? Do we consider the, uh, the awkwardness of that conversation not worth it? So we hold it into ourselves. Do we teach sound doctrine or do we make up false doctrine to make ourselves more appealing to the people outside? A common misconception spreading throughout what used to be called mainstream churches right now is that you have to conform to the ways of this world instead of being transformed by the newing of your mind so that you don't hemorrhage members. But what we are finding out through research, and, and I believe that it was Barna that conducted this, uh, the mainstream churches that decided to go more liberal and to to devalue the Word of God in their instructions are the ones that are hemorrhaging members and those that can no longer, by virtue of the number of congregations that they still have active and the people that are still attending, they can no longer be considered mainstream. Isn't that interesting? When the church ceases to make a difference in people's lives, 
when the church ceases to, to get people to transform into a Christ-like person, then it ceases to be a value for the kingdom. And the membership acts accordingly. Where there is no law, but everyone does what is right in their own eyes, there is but the least of spiritual liberty. Do we teach sound doctrine or false? Lastly, do we offer learning or emotion only? Do we disciple? Do we proclaim? Do we encourage? Do we teach? Or are we just there to feel good? To get our fix, quote unquote, and then to leave? I believe several of us have uh, friends that go to churches that are more emotionally driven where the, the pastoral message and the sermon, if you want to call it that even, is more of a um, motivational speech with a little bit of scripture thrown in. And by the time that that is over and they return to the car, you ask them, what did you learn? And you get a blank stare. So do we balance ourselves by offering both spirit-centric worship and biblical discipleship? Or do we do what they did in Ephesus and overbalance so that one lives and the other dies? Anyway, moving on. Uh, this parable comes to us through verse 30, beginning with verse 34. Jesus told the crowds all these things in parables, and he did not tell them anything without a parable, so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. I will open my mouth in parables. I will declare the things kept secret from the foundations of the world. Um, in Ephesians, Paul is, is commenting on Christ's, uh, on the gospel this way. By reading this, you are able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. So what is the mystery that the kingdom parables are now proclaiming that we didn't find uh, in the Old Testament, at least not spoken abruptly. Remember, the New Testament is the Old Testament concealed. The Old, the Old Testament is in the New Testament what? Revealed. So what was the cornerstone component of what the gospel just told us? That there was something that, that Christ is revealing in these kingdom parables. Something that was kind of hinted at in the Old Testament, but not fully stated. This was not made known to people in other generations as it is now revealed to his holy apostles and the prophets by the Spirit. The Gentiles are co-heirs, members of the same body, partners in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The difference is the church. All throughout the Old Testament, there are references to Gentiles being saved. But here Paul spells out that no, there's a difference here in that we're not only saved, we're not only going into being citizens of heaven or being living in heaven, but we're also citizens. Not just citizens, but, but co-heirs with the king himself, with Christ. So the church, the gathering of the redeemed, the called out ones, those who are co-heirs with Christ, there is a difference here that was not outright stated in the Old Testament. That you have a position. As you are in Christ, you are a member of the royal family of God. That was not proclaimed until 
Christ entered into the, the Christ brought us into rather the age of the church. So again, we're more than an organization. We are Jews and Gentiles grafted on to the root of Jesse. We are in a new covenant that was that was proclaimed by Christ after he had fulfilled the requirements of the old. The lamb without spot or blemish, the sacrifice that redeems all mankind, making us brothers and sisters under him, co-heirs and partakers together in the same gospel. So, the parables. He told them many things in parables, saying, Consider the sower. One of the things I want you to pay attention to as we're going through these, pay attention to common themes. Now, a couple of studies ago, I mentioned of a rule in hermeneutics called the rule of expositional constancy. And all that means, it's a fancy way of saying, if something is mentioned one time in Scripture as a prophetic symbol, then it tends to hold that symbol throughout the course of Scripture. Now, that can be the case in colors and building materials, in uh, different kinds of money. Silver, for instance, was the, the blood price that was used at the, ten, the temple to, uh, to pay for different animals to use in different sacrifices. Um, silver was also the sockets in, that were used by the old tabernacle. So there's all this symbolism that's thrown in, and it carries throughout the course of Scripture. So take a look for the different images and the different symbols that are brought up here. And we'll talk about them as we continue forward. Consider the sower who went out to sow. As he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Pay attention to who the birds are. We're going to talk about them just in just a second. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it didn't have much soil, and it grew quickly up and since the soil wasn't deep. But when the sun came up, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it did what? It withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it. Still other seeds fell on good ground, good hearts, in other words, that Christ or that the Holy Spirit had prepared beforehand. And they produced fruit, some a hundred, some sixty, and some thirty, some thirty times that went sown. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen. That's a phrase that should catch our attention. That shows that there is a thematic consistency between the kingdom parallels and the letters to the churches. Now also, I want you to notice that there are diminishing returns. That as the church continues, that as the good-hearted soil is fed or is seeded, the return diminishes over time. Some 60, some 30, some 100, some 60, some 30. I find that interesting. So listen to the parable of the sower. Now here, later on, here he's, he's trying to explain the symbols. When anyone hears the word about the kingdom and doesn't understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is the one sown along the path. So what are the birds? Birds are the agents of the evil one. Now, this isn't true of all birds, but in, in the parables, I want you to pay attention to that. 
Difference, for instance, in the way that treat, the scriptures treat ravens versus doves. But right now we're just talking, uh, for lack of a better term, we're talking about all ravens, I guess, in this case. The one sown on rocky ground. This is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, but has no root and is short-lived. The one who is all emotion and no discipleship. He has no root and is short-lived. When distress or persecution comes because of the world, immediately he falls away. The fair-weather believer. When Christianity means that we have to give up something, when Christianity means that we have to take a stand, when Christianity means that in order to do right what is expected of us, of our Savior and Lord, and then the world decides to react and react hostily, these are the groups like so many of our more liberal denominations that cave in and they start rewriting their doctrine to better mesh the, the, the philosophy of the world rather than Christian doctrine. The fair weather types. Verse 22, now the one sown among the thorns. This is the one who hears the word, but the worries of this age and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. These are the hearts of those who are fixated on the here and now instead of the hereafter. These are the ones Jesus is talking about who can't see the forest for the trees, that, that are so worried about where their next meal is coming from or what clothes they wear or how big their bank account is that they have no regard for Scripture. They have no regard for discipleship. They have no regard for the church. And so their station in life pulls them away from being part of the local congregation. But the one sown on good ground, this is the one who hears and understands the word, who does produce fruit. The fruit of a Christian is more Christians. The one who produced fruit and yields some hundred, some sixty, some thirty times what was sown. So again, the seed represents symbolically the word of God. The soil represents hearts that are within the world. The birds represent the servants of the evil one. And that can be both people and demonic. That is likely to be, more likely to be in, in this day and age, the fallen person that is just living out the culture that they live in. Stony places represent shallow faith, the immature, the fair weather, thorns, the cares of this world that hide our eyes from the true meaning of life found in eternity. Everybody with me so far? Say amen. Okay. Any comments or questions on that one before we move on? Anything in the comments section? All right, let's continue with the next parable. Incidentally, if you do have a, a comment or a, a concern or anything comes to mind, please share it in the comments or just raise your hand in the case of those here. Verse 24, he presented another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while people were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among them, among the wheat, and he left. Now remember, wheat is a very important crop in Israel. Grains in this kind of desert climate, grains are what keeps you alive. When the plants sprouted and produced grain, then the weeds also appeared. The landowner, the tares in some of your translations, the landowner's servants came to him and said, Master, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Then where are these weeds come from? 
An enemy did this, he told them. So do you want us to go out and pull them up? The servants asked him. No, he said. When you go to pull the weeds, you might also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At the harvest time, I'll tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and tie them in bundles to burn them, but collect the wheat in my barn. Then he left the crowds, went into the house. His disciples approached them and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. So his inner circle comes to him, we don't get it. <laughs> Teach us about this. What does all this mean? As good students should ask. Verse 37, he replied, The one who sows good seeds is the Son of Man. The one who's proclaiming the gospel in this case. The same ministry that we've inherited. The field is the world. And the good seed, these are the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the children of the evil one. Now, if we take this in context of the local church, that means that when the enemy notices that God is spreading the word and he is saving souls, he inevitably sends people, wolves in sheep's clothing, into the area of the local church to disrupt it. He sows tares, the enemy sows tares among the wheat. The bad thing about the tares that he's talking about here, the weeds that he's talking about here, it's a specific type of plant that looks, when it's growing up, it looks almost exactly like wheat. Only wheat, when it's ready for harvest, turns white. And this specific plant, who's, my apologies, I can't remember right now, but this specific weed turns black. In other words, it shows its true colors at harvest time. And if you mill it and make bread with it, it's poisonous. The spies that the enemy plants in the church, those who claim church membership but don't claim redemption, those who transfer membership or those who think that membership will save them when in fact they have no experience with the gospel, no personal relationship, no confirmation, no, uh, no transforming regeneration in their lives, those people will cause illness, sickness within the body of Christ in the local church. The weeds are the children of the, e the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, the end of the church age, in other words, and the, harvest, the harvesters are the angels. Therefore, just as the weeds are gathered and burned in the fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out His angels, and they will gather from his kingdom all who cause sin and those guilty of lawlessness. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the righteous will shine like the sun in their father's kingdom. And again, we see that phrase, let anyone who has ears listen. Christ is the sower field is the world. The wheat are the believers, those who are regenerate, those who accept Christ as Savior and Lord. The tares are the unbelievers, both the external persecutors, the unbelievers outright, and those who come into the church claiming to be believers and yet are not transformed. 
The enemy of, uh, is, of course, Satan, the, the accuser of the brethren, the devil. The enemy, the central truth here is the enemy will harass the kingdom. But when judgment comes, the true colors will become evident, even though they grow side by side. Even though they look exactly alike up to a point, when the time of harvest comes, their true colors will show. Notice also the symbol of the color white that is kind of assumed as far as the, the seed of the wheat is concerned. The innocent versus the black, the guilty. And we've talked about that before, so we'll move on. Uh, verse 31. He presented another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. Notice that this is not the faith of a mustard seed, even though it's, it's in parallel to it. This is a kingdom parable talking about someone who's deliberately planting a mustard seed. It's the smallest of all the seeds, but when is grown, is taller than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the sky come and nest in its branches. Now, this is interesting for those who have ever been to Israel or who, uh, who have ever sown Egyptian mustard, which is the local variety of mustard because they only form a bush that's at its tallest only about three to four feet high. Not something that a bird would want to nest in. So there are two different interpretations of this particular parable. And this is, this is one of the parables that Jesus himself does not necessarily give an example to because his disciples didn't ask him to. Wouldn't you like to punch them? No, we know this much. So there is the, the native mustard in the area, what they call Egyptian mustard, again, only forms a small bush about three to four feet tall on average, four feet at max. The Western European or, or the, the German Celtic type of mustard that the Romans would have brought with them to places like Capernaum, places around the Galilee, are different. It's a different species altogether. The seed is about the same size, but these do launch into a tree that can go uh, six feet at its shortest, 20 feet at its tallest. So this, this is less of an herb and more of an orchard type of plant. One interpretation that I'll give you for your hearing, uh, for those that side with the Egyptian mustard end of things, they believe that what Jesus is saying is that when the faith arrives and when the seed is planted and when the church begins and it sprouts up, understanding that the Egyptian mustard was the common mustard, which is what would have been in the, the minds of the people hearing his parables, what Jesus is saying without saying is that the, the church will become a monstrous entity, something larger than it was ever intended to become. I've heard that, that particular uh, interpretation. But the mustard that grows to become a tree is something that Jesus is, uh, the people of his day would have been well acquainted with because it was brought and planted by the Romans, the same way with a Latin, uh, excuse me, Italian grapes, uh, olives, and so forth. So it's a con these are plants that would have been located in Caesarea, around Capernaum, places of a large Latin population. So that they would have grown there. 20 feet tall from a seed that's about 2 millimeters across. 
So it starts small and it becomes huge. So huge again, like the rich man's field, as we can kind of take for granted. It becomes so large and so prosperous that it gains the enemy's attention. What did the birds from the first parable represent? See, we don't get that because we're reading these parables with Western eyes. But the prophetic image remains consistent. Mustard seeds are small, but they have tremendous potential. And if they have enough faith for that potential to be realized, which is what Jesus is effectively saying, that they become something tremendous. But in that growth process, because they're growing and because they're growing against the enemy, it gets the enemy's attention. And what happens to the tree when it gains its full height? The birds come into it. The enemy finds shelter in the church. We can see that this is a parable of, uh, I believe it was was, uh, either Thessalonica or um, my memory fails me, excuse me, but the place of the prophetess Jezebel. That's what this sounds like. This sounds like a church that has a tremendous potential. So the enemy throws everything he has inside of it. Verse 33. Told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and mixed into 50 pounds, three measures. I want you to hold to that translation for a second. We'll come back to it. Uh, In the CSB, it's taken for granted that you want to know the actual weight and size. But the more literal translation from the point of view of the culture of this day is three measures. You need to understand that. I'll tell you why after we finish the initial reading. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and mixed into 50 pounds of flour until all of it was leavened. Now, this is one of those single-verse gems. And I've heard it, I've actually heard it preached, that what this means is that uh, the Word of God, when it's infused into the church, will cause it to grow and expand. But if you were a Jew in Jesus' day, and you heard that somebody came into the house of a believer and put leaven into three measures of, 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 of fine flour, they would be horror struck. Three measures of meal, three measures of flour is the fellowship offering. It's the same offering all the way back that we can tell all the way back in the book of Genesis when Abraham asked Sarah to prepare three measures of, of flour Make bread unleavened. Don't take time to gribble it. Just, just make, uh, make cakes out of three measures of bread. Why? Because we have with us God and the two angels. And that same pattern gets set, gets set up for the fellowship offering with uh, the, the tabernacle and later with the temple. So if someone infuses that three measures of flour with leavening, what does leaven mean to a Jew? Sin, it puffs up. It makes you bigger than you actually are. It is an emblem of pride, in other words, sin. So if you infuse the fellowship of God with sin, that should cause us to take note. 
So the culture that Jesus is actually talking to right now, he's not saying that the leaven is the word of God. No, he's saying that a little bit of leaven corrupts the whole flour. That's, that's kind of a tag along as to what he's saying. That someone infuses the fellowship, the three measures, the fellowship with sin, and as a result, the whole body becomes corrupt. Pride before God, pride destroying the fellowship, pride infiltrating the kingdom of God. In other words, the church. You can refer to this as uh, an echo of Laodicea. Verse 44. Anything, anything up to that point from anyone? Does this make sense so far? Okay. So as we're going through these, think about our church. Think about, or for those of you listening from other congregations, think about your own churches and how Christ describes what is possible in deterring us from our mission and what he instructs us to do to get back on track. Verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied. Then in his joy, he goes and sells everything and then he buys that field. Now, I've, I've heard this interpreted several different ways too. But uh, from the last few parables, what does the field represent? The field represents the world. The sower sows. The person that, that plants the wheats and the tares, um, well, plants the wheat. All, the, the fields represent the world at large, the people within the world. So he finds a treasure scattered within the world. And he gives everything that he has, everything that he has, to buy that field, knowing that only one small chunk of it holds the treasure. What is this saying about Christ? The field is, of course, the world. We are the treasure, the redeemed. The thing within the field that's of value to the master. And it's a reminder that Christ gave all. Even though there was a lot of ground that had no value to it whatsoever, he gave everything that he was just for those that would be redeemed. Verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. When he found one priceless pearl, he went out and sold everything he had and bought it. Now, this is something else that we, we often misread with Western eyes. Now, we think that it's just a simple image of redemption, but it's a lot more than that. There's, there's more depth to it. For starters, oysters are not kosher. Shellfish is not kosher. In fact, pearls in a Jewish community were not considered worth anything except something to be traded with the Gentiles that would fool with such things. Because if a Jew became a pearl diver, he instantly became ceremonially unclean. Oysters are not kosher. 
Pearls are unclean. So they represent something that's not Jewish. They represent us, the Gentiles. Something else I want to remind you about what a, what a pearl is. A pearl begins its life when a bit of sand gets caught up in the filter system of an oyster. So it starts its, its existence as an irritation, a thorn in the side, so to speak. And then the pearl, I mean, excuse me, the, the oyster secretes this substance called mother of pearl that washes that grain, that, that sand, that irritation until it becomes smooth, until it becomes something valuable, something precious. So it starts as an irritant, it grows through washing, and it is removed from its place of growth to become a cherished possession. The Gentiles in the sight of God. An image of the church to be sure, but also an image of the fact that those of us who do not come from Jewish households are also precious in the sight of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And when you get that, it takes on a whole new level of meaning. We who had no hope now have every hope. Verse 47, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a large net thrown into the sea. It collected every kind of fish, and when it was full, they dragged it ashore sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but threw out the worthless ones. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will go out, separate the evil people from the righteous, and throw them into the blazing furnace, where there will be the weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's a lot of similarities between this particular parable and the one about the wheat and the tares. It sets out again that Christ is the divine judge of all and there will be a judgment. So let's quickly take a look at the central truths, the in brief of these parables, the same way that we did the seven churches. Again, any comments, questions or concerns up to, that point, up to this point from anybody? Okay, in the four soils, church membership requires commitment. When we take these kingdom parables and we apply them to the body of Christ, which is the church, the, in context, this is what we get. Church membership requires commitment. Persecutors from the outside, uh, the birds will come in, be on the lookout for them. And also that we have to be diligent about teaching within the home and the church. Think about eternity. Not the here and now. Think about deepening your soil, deepening yourself into God's Word, actually being a disciple, not just going in and getting an emotional high in a worship service but actually digging into God's Word and being transformed by it and the power of the Spirit and pass that on. 
Maturity withstands persecution and worldly pleasures. That's another truth we can get from this. Christian maturity digs deeper into the Word of God, as I've just mentioned. And maturity requires constant watchfulness, unlike the church at Sardis. Constant watchfulness and reliance on God. The wheat and the tares. There will be persecutors within the church. So discipline the whole body. The enemy will try to rob the body of health. It will be toxic. Whoever comes in as an unregenerate person that tries to steer the church into fulfilling their wants, their desires, and their preferences will cause dysfunction and outright toxicity within the body of Christ. Persecution from within, and we can define that as gossip, as posturing, as false teaching, and as someone who deliberately attempts to, to uh, live in a sense of power struggle, who stirs the pot, as someone says. The mustard seed. Gentiles are part of the growing church. And the church grows through faith, reliance on God's faithfulness. But also that when we grow, we get the enemy's attention. A growing church will come under attack because it's doing its job. The birds are after the seeds. These can, are again, we, we call these false teachers, false doctrines, false images of understanding Christ. People who would snatch away Honest discipleship and future disciples from the church. How many of us know kids that grew up in the church that left the church because they were hurt by the church? The seeds of the church get snatched out because people within the church behaved like the rest of the world and persecuted their own. The flower and the leaven. Sin corrupts the body. Sin corrupts the fellowship. Pride will destroy it. Pride will destroy a church. If we do something to say, look at us, how good are we? Look at what I've built versus look at what God has built. It's all about me and not about God. Then we're, that's a recipe for destruction. Pride corrupts totally. As Paul would later say in his commentary, a little leaven corrupts the whole lump, meaning that once a bunch of dough has been leavened, you can't undo it. You can't recycle it back into the pure matzah that is the symbol for righteousness. A church that is more reliant on itself than God is useless to the kingdom. For the treasures in the field, I put down Jesus' own commentary in John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son the best that He had, everything that He had. That whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world as a whole, we might say, but that the world through Him might be what? Saved. The fishing net, as we've mentioned before, Christ himself is the Lord and the judge. And there are those that will not become citizens of heaven. 
There are those that will not accept the transforming power of the Holy Spirit, that will remain conformed to the ways of this world, that will not be regenerate because they did not accept Christ as Savior and as Lord, and therefore denied the involvement of the Holy Spirit in their lives, if not outright His, His, His indwelling presence, and claimed only the title of church membership without the title of Christian. I remember back in the 80s in, in the different Baptist conventions, this became a real ordeal as we took a systemic look at our local churches and we saw the levels of church conflict rising. And as we took a look at our discipleship systems, we understood that we had people in the church that weren't Christian, that were nevertheless voting on things, heading things, in some cases, pre in some cases preaching. You cannot be a member of a church and not, you can't be a member of a church without being a regenerate Christian. So for next time, next time we're going to begin our look at what I am calling, for lack of a better term, the hard prophecy of the book of Revelation. That's the third section in Jesus' outline. Jesus' outline again to John, write what thou hast seen, what is, and what will be meditata, after these things. So we're starting with the after these things. Uh, the prophetic imagery, as well as Christ's final redemption and the consummation of all things. So before we begin that work, we're going to take a session and we're going to take a hard look at what prophecy is, prophetic symbols, uh, prophetic ministry, what qualifies as prophecy in this culture, in the sight of God, and what has accidentally drifted into our culture from the paganistic end of things that people are still in the church of today calling prophetic. So we'll take a look at that so that we get that understanding before we go further. Um, I want you to think about this before the next session. This is your homework. What does prophecy mean to you? When you're journaling and when you're talking in your groups, think about these things. What does prophecy mean to you? What is your personal definition of prophecy? What are the characteristics of real prophecy? Is there a pattern to it? Is there a style to it? Are there levels of meaning to it? What are the characteristics of real, genuine, God-breathed prophecy? Note that phrase. But we'll talk about that uh, next time we meet. How did they, or how can we, identify false prophets? The believers of the past had a system of testing. To see, I glibly call it the one strike rule. What did they use then? How can we tell now? So again, think about these things. Journal on these things. Talk about them with your groups. And please make sure that you're in contact with your groups. Anything else before we dismiss? If not, let's bow our hearts. Heavenly Father, it's again that we come before you and that we thank you for the gift of your word, for your instruction on what a church really should be 
and how it really should function. Help us to be bringers of health to your body. Help us to be always open to the teaching of your word and the leadership of your spirit. Empower us as we go from this place to do the work that you have prepared for us. And may, may the ministry of your word bear fruit in all of our hearts. May it grow. May it lead the church to prosper as you would have it to prosper. But now send us to the work you have before us with your leadership, with your strength, and with your guidance. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from High Lawn Baptist Church. If you'd like to learn more about High Lawn Baptist Church or donate to our ongoing ministry, you can do so online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. We believe that when you love God, you share His Word, and when you love others, you spread the gospel. We hope you enjoyed today's message and pray that you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.